Hello everyone, this is Paul Aronowitz back to do the next few questions in the Rheumatology Internal Medicine Essentials. What I'm going to do, uh, because there's only eight questions left in this section, I'm going to do uh, four questions in one bundle and the last four questions in a second bundle. I was a little concerned yesterday when I uh, made this uh, this last podcast that we had 39 minutes of broadcasting time, and I think that's a little too much in terms of keeping your attention span affixed to this book. So we're going to do four questions today and uh, four questions when I get to them at some point to finish off the rheumatology section. Uh, so this is item number... Oh, and before I start, I want to thank the clerkship directors in internal medicine as well for all their amazing contributions to both the internal medicine essentials text as well as these question sets. I just ha uh, counted up the number of contributing authors from clerkship directors in internal med of internal medicine, and there are over 90 contributors, um, including the editors. So amazing effort by them uh, to make your educations better. And this is a very high-quality um, product as well, I think, um, in my own experience in 25 years of medical education. I would uh, say that it's a go-to text and go-to book of questions. Item 31, uh, this is a 60-year-old man who's evaluated for an eight-month history of progressive generalized weakness and difficulty rising from a chair. He reports occasional fever and muscle aches. Medical history is otherwise unremarkable. He does not smoke and drinks one to two alcoholic beverages daily. He takes no medications. On physical examination, temperature is 37.4 degrees centigrade, blood pressure is 128 over 76, pulse rate is 72 per minute, and respiratory rate is 18 per minute. No rash is present, or that should probably say he does not have a rash. Bilateral proximal upper and lower extremity weakness is noted with mild tenderness of the large muscle groups to palpation. Distal muscle strength is normal. Laboratory studies reveal an erythrocyte sedimentation rate of 56 millimeters per hour and a serum creatine kinase level of 1,100 units per liter. Electromyogram shows muscle irritability without evidence of neuropathy. A proximal thigh muscle biopsy reveals pronounced lymphocytic infiltration of the muscle fascicles. There is no evidence of perivascular infiltration or filamentous particles in the sarcoplasm. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, alcohol-related myopathy, B, dermatomyositis, C, inclusion body myositis, or D, polymyositis? And again, those choices are A, alcohol-related myopathy, B, dermatomyositis, C, inclusion body myositis, or D, polymyositis. So contemplate that, if you will, for one moment. So the answer here is D, which is polymyositis. This patient uh, probably has polymyositis, which is a disorder characterized by acute or subacute onset of proximal muscle weakness without rash or distal muscle involvement. Note that they just stated that he did not have a rash, uh, or in their words, he had no rash, uh, which you can't really have no rash. You um, don't have a rash. Anyway, not to be picky, electromyography uh, or EMG cannot reliably distinguish polymyositis from other forms of inflammatory myopathy. 
which is why they proceeded to muscle biopsy in this question. So muscle biopsy is the gold standard for diagnosing the idiopathic inflammatory myopathies, of which this is one of them. The muscle biopsy is usually not obtained on the same side as the EMG because the EMG can disrupt muscle architecture, cause local inflammation, and affect biopsy results. Um, that's usually an issue that uh, the person doing the biopsy will be aware of, but it's probably a good thing for you to know as well. Biopsy characterization of the infiltration pattern in cell marker allows for the diagnosis of polymyositis versus dermatomyositis or inclusion body myositis. So muscle biopsy results from a patient with polymyositis characteristically show a CD8 positive T-cell infiltration within the muscle fascicles, often with invasion of intact major major histocompatibility, or MHC, complex expressing muscle fibers. So this patient is seen in this patient. Oh, they don't, they don't tell you that he has CD8 positive T-cell infiltration. They just tell you that he has lymphocytic infiltration. So I guess you're left to guess what type of, uh, whether it's CD8 or CD4, as we'll come to in a few minutes. So this pattern uh, is often accompanied by evidence of muscle fiber necrosis, uh, as well as uh, degeneration. So um, patients with, so you're wondering why this couldn't be alcohol-related myopathy. Well, for one thing, you know, they're usually going to give you a history in these questions of excessive alcohol use and one to two drinks per day. At least I hope not. Uh, <laughs> I hope that's not excessive. Uh, but uh, one to two drinks per day uh, is not really considered excessive alcohol use. Um, and patients who do have chronic heavy alcohol use who come in with alcohol-related myopathy might present with diffuse proximal muscle weakness that develops over weeks or months. But this patient tends to um, be in, as I said, high levels of chronic alcohol use and only involves a mild elevation of muscle enzymes is not associated with evidence of inflammation on muscle biopsy as is seen in, in this patient. So dermatomyositis, uh, hopefully you didn't go for that, but if you did, then you learned something from this question. That's characterized by myopathic symptoms similar to those in polymyositis. But remember, it's going to be, in, in real life and in these questions, it's going to be associated with a typical rash. So what are those typical rashes? This is something people love to ask you about on internal medicine rounds, as well as at morning report uh, for internal medicine residency programs. The first is a heliotrope rash, which occurs on the upper eyelids and in the periorbital area. You'll remember perhaps that a heliotrope is a type of flower that's purple. It grows quite a bit in Northern California where I'm located. It's a very pretty flower. Um, and so you get this sort of deep purplish rash on the upper eyelids and periorbital area. You also get photosensitive rashes involving the shoulders, neck, and anterior chest, so-called shawl sign, as well as gotrin papules, which are these hyperkeratotic red papules, as well as plaques over the bony prominences of the hands. Um, you can also get, they don't talk about this in the text, but something called mechanics hands, which is on the palmer aspect of the hands, and this can make the hands look really rough, as though the person's been working on a car with large wrenches for quite some time. So biopsy results differ from those in polymyositis, uh, in dermatomyositis. In dermatomyositis, you get a notable CD4 positive T cells around the muscle fascicles and in the um, perimesial areas. So in distinguishing dermatomyositis from polymyositis, 
polymyositis, you're not going to have the rash, and, um, and you're going to have a CD8 uh, positive T cells. In dermatomyositis, you're going to have the characteristic things with the muscles, uh, inflammation and so forth, but you're also going to have CD4 positive T cells and these various types of rashes. Not all those rashes are going to be present. Um, those are sort of the classic findings, but they're not always there all the time or even occurring together. As far as inclusion body myositis, the clue in this question as to why this wasn't inclusion body myositis, when they say that uh, there were no filamentous particles in the sarcoplasma, what they're saying is that there were no inclusion bodies noted on the pathology. Um, so inclusion body myositis usually affects older persons, has an insidious course, and is characterized by proximal and distal muscle weakness. The typical biopsy um, are similar to polymyositis, but as I said, they include characteristic filamentous particles in the sarcoplasm termed inclusion bodies, which were not present. So this was not inclusion body myositis. So key point in this question, muscle biopsy is the gold standard for diagnosing the idiopathic inflammatory myopathies. Question number 32, and again, I apologize uh, for my Bell's palsy. As you probably noticed, my voice is not back to normal. This is going on three weeks here. Actually, it is three weeks today uh, ago that this started with pain behind my right ear, which turns out is classic, by the way, for Bell's palsy. I didn't know about that particular finding. It can be exquisitely painful um, involves earfulness, pain in the ear, pain in the jaw, and pain in the face, all of which, unfortunately, I've had with this, as well as inability to close my right eye, which has made driving and other activities extremely difficult. Uh, anyway, uh, just to, again, apologize for that um, abnormality in my voice, particularly with P or B sounds. Uh, noticing that's probably the most difficult. Anyway, item number 32, enough about me. A 38-year-old woman is evaluated for a gritty... By the way, I've found that having a sense of humor about having a drooping face is probably the best approach because impatience gets you nowhere and frustration gets you nowhere. 38-year-old woman is evaluated for a gritty, burning sensation in her eyes that worsens over the course of the day. Her eyes are often dry, especially on windy days. She also reports a dry mouth with difficulty salivating at times. She has no other symptoms. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. The conjunctiva are irritated. Visual acuity and fundoscopic examination are normal. Decreased tear production is documented with the Schirmer test. The remainder of the examination is normal. Laboratory studies are significant for a positive antinuclear antibody assay, rheumatoid factor, and anti-Rho SSA and anti-LA SSB titers. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, lacrimal gland dysfunction, B, primary Sjogren syndrome, C, rheumatoid arthritis, or D, systemic lupus erythematosus. And again, those choices are A, lacrimal gland dysfunction, B, primary Sjogren syndrome, C, rheumatoid arthritis, or D, systemic lupus erythematosus. So push your button for which choice you're selecting and... The answer here is B, which is primary Sjogren syndrome. So this patient has primary Sjogren syndrome, which is characterized by Sika syndrome, that's S-I-C-C-A syndrome, which causes xeropthalmia, ophthal which is dry eyes, and xerostomia, which is dry mouth. Fancy words for you to integrate into your medical, rapidly expanding medical vocabularies. 
zero ophthalmia and zero stomia, dry eyes and dry mouth. The absence of oral mucosal moisture often causes difficulty with mastication and swallowing and increases the risk for dental caries as well as periodontal disease. Vaginal dryness and parotid gland enlargement are frequently present, and mild fatigue and arthralgia are common. Um, abnormal findings on the Schirmer test, that's S-C-H-I-R-M-E-R, if you don't have a book in front of you, uh, which measures moisture under the lower eyelids, are consistent with Sjogren's syndrome. So here's the important thing to know about all these, um, these antibody tests. So... Approximately 50% of patients with this syndrome are anti-nuclear antibody positive, and 60 to 75% of patients with primary Sjogren's syndrome are anti-Rho SSA antibody positive, and approximately 40% of these patients with anti-LA SSB antibody are positive. In addition, 60 to 80% of patients with this condition have rheumatoid factor positivity. So the presence of xerophthalmia and xerostomia accompanied by anti-Rho SSA and anti-LA SSB antibody positivity and abnormal findings on the Schirmer test have a 94% sensitivity and specificity for diagnosing primary Sjogren syndrome. So uh, other systemic features of Sjogren, and I know you're kind of wondering, so why is this not lupus and why is this not rheumatoid factor and how do you confuse the two or not confuse the two, I should say? if you have all these crossovers with these tests, and I'll come to that in a second. So other systemic features of Sjogren's syndrome are uncommon, but may include an inflammatory polyarthritis, cutaneous vasculitis, peripheral neuropathy, interstitial nephritis, and interstitial lung disease. So to go to why these other uh, answers are wrong and primary Sjogren's is the right, you're probably getting the sense, just big picture with this question, that really the main things involved with this patient uh, as described, were the dry eyes and dry mouth, and really no other marked um, abnormalities, complaints, findings, etc. So let's go through the incorrect choices. Lacrimal gland dysfunction is a common cause of dry eyes that may be age-related or due to obstruction of the lacrimal, lacrimal gland. However, given the patient's age and the presence of dry mouth and anti-Rho SSA and anti-LA SSB positivity, lacrimal gland dysfunction would not be adequate to explain her clinical picture. So, you know, it's these positive antibodies as well as the positive Schirmer's test and so forth. So what about uh, rheumatoid arthritis or lupus? So both RA and systemic lupus erythematosus can be associated with Sjogren's syndrome. So that would be secondary Sjogren's syndrome, not primary Sjogren's. Those Sjogren's in that case would be due to or associated with lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. But in those cases, um, systemic symptoms and findings such as joint involvement, I won't get into what the joint involvement is with rheumatoid arthritis because you have that down pat by now, at, uh, going through this section of the book, uh, pleuritis, cerebritis, lung dysfunction, skin changes uh, may all occur. And despite the patient's positive antinuclear antibody and rheumatoid factor test results, her lack of systemic symptoms and her normal physical exam findings, except for the xerophthalmia and xerophstomia, as mentioned, argue against rheumatoid arthritis or SLE as a cause of secondary Sjogren's syndrome. So hopefully that's pretty clear to you at this point. So the key point in this question is the presence of xerophthalmia and xerostomia accompanied by anti-Rho SSA and anti-LA SSB antibody positivity and abnormal findings on the Schirmer test 
have a 94% sensitivity and specificity for the diagnosis of primary Shogun syndrome. Item number 33. A 34-year-old woman is evaluated during a follow-up examination. Fibromyalgia was diagnosed one year ago. At that time, she received intensive education about her condition and an aerobic exercise program was prescribed. Pregabalin was also initiated but was discontinued when she developed hives. She continues to have fatigue, widespread pain, and difficulty sleeping. She currently takes an over-the-counter non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug intermittently without relief of pain. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Musculoskeletal examination reveals multiple tender points but no synovitis or muscle weakness. Screening for mood disorders is negative. The remainder of the examination is normal. Repeat laboratory studies since her initial diagnosis, including erythrocyte sedimentation rate and serum thyroid stimulating hormone, or TSH, are normal. Which of the following is the most appropriate class of pharmacologic treatment for this patient? A. Glucocorticoids B. Long-acting opioids C. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or D. Serotonin or epinephrine reuptake inhibitors Again, that's A. Glucocorticoids B. Long-acting opioids C. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or D. Serotonin or epinephrine uh, reuptake inhibitors So push your little choice box there and the answer here is D, which would be the um, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So uh, treatment with serotonin norepinephrine inhibitors, or SNRIs, is appropriate for this patient with fibromyalgia. So what is fibromyalgia? It's characterized by widespread pain and tenderness of at least three months duration. Other things you will see with um, fibromyalgia are uh, fatigue, sleep disturbance, mood disorder, and cognitive dysfunction. Uh, so the first thing you have to do in treating it is to try non-pharmacologic therapy, which is the cornerstone of the initial treatment. So that what is that? That's regular aerobic exercise, which has been shown to be effective in this setting. Um, so high-impact aerobic exercises are usually poorly tolerated, but walking or water aerobics are often better accepted by the patients. Cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to be beneficial, but it's not always readily available to a lot of patients, so this may not be an option where you're working. So this patient has a one-year history of widespread pain and tenderness along with fatigue and difficulty sleeping. These are all features consistent with fibromyalgia. So she's already tried pregabalin, which is um, one of the first-line therapies, but she got an allergic reaction, namely the hives. So at this point, uh, moving her on to an SNRI, a serotonin or epi reuptake inhibitor, is warranted. So duloxetine or um, milsalsapran are uh, SNRIs approved by the Food and Drug Administration to treat fibromyalgia. Um, with or without mood disorder and are as effective as pregabalin. So any of those three choices would be fine. So um, uh, basically, fiber, as far as the other choices go, fibromyalgia is not an inflammatory condition, and uh, so you would not use glucocorticoids or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to treat them. Obviously, there are side effects to both of those agents, and you don't want to use them if they're not really indicated. Opioid medications have not been shown to be effective in treating fibromyalgia, and of course, they carry the significant risk of side effects as well as dependency. 
and then data on use of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, in patients with fibromyalgia are somewhat conflicting, and none of these agents is currently FDA-approved for this condition. So that's the gist of this question about fibromyalgia. So key point here, the serotonin nor epi uptake inhibitors, duloxetine and milnasopran, if I'm saying that right, because I'm not sure I am, are FDA approved to treat patients who have fibromyalgia with or without associated depression. Item number 34, and um, this will be the last in this set, and then we'll do the last four questions as a separate set. A 58-year-old man is evaluated for a six-week history of pain and stiffness of the shoulders and hips. His symptoms are worse in the morning, and he notes significant discomfort when putting on his clothes. Over the past two weeks, he has developed fever, a 2.2-kilogram or 5-pound weight loss, and headache. The patient is otherwise well and takes no medications. On physical examination, temperatures 38.6 degrees centigrade, blood pressure 140 over 70, pulse rate 100 per minute and regular, and respiratory rate is 16. There is mild tenderness of the scalp to palpation. Musculoskeletal examination reveals mild pain and limitation at the extremes of shoulder and hip rotation bilaterally. Neurologic examination is unremarkable. Laboratory studies are significant for hematocrit of 32% and erythrocyte sedimentation rate of 103 millimeters per hour and normal kidney function tests in urinalysis. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A, dilated ophthalmologic exam. B, magnetic resonance imaging of the brain. C, MRI of the shoulder and hip joints. Or D, temporal artery biopsy. Again, choices A, dilated ophthalmologic examination. B, MRI of the brain. C, MRI of the shoulder and hip joints. Or D, a temporal artery biopsy. So go ahead and weigh in on your selection there. So the answer here is answer D, which would be a temporal artery biopsy. So this patient has classic symptoms and signs of both polymyalgia rheumatica, otherwise known as PMR, and giant cell arteritis, or GCA, and should undergo a temporal artery biopsy. PMR is a condition closely related to giant cell arteritis that presents with hip and shoulder, shoulder girdle stiffness and pain and elevated inflammatory markers. So giant cell arteritis may be present in 15 to 30% of patients with polymyalgia rheumatica. We're kind of classically taught that it's more common than that, but it's when you think about it, it's less than 50% of patients with PMR will develop giant cell arteritis, but we have to be very, very, very aware of this association in order to get on it as quickly as possible in making the diagnosis and treating them. Patients with only PMR do not have the classic findings of giant cell arteritis, such as temporal artery tenderness, headache, jaw pain, vision loss, or non-cranial ischemia, such as arm claudication. I once saw a patient who had um, lingual artery um, infarction of her tongue. Uh, that's the uh, main artery surviving the posterior part of the tongue, which was extremely painful and was due to her vasculitis. In the absence of symptoms or clinical findings consistent with giant cell arteritis, a trial of glucocorticoid therapy is indicated for 
as PMR typically responds very dramatically to this therapy, patients get better really fast. And if you taper them off their steroids too fast, they get worse really fast too. However, this patient has headache and scalp tenderness in addition to his PMR symptoms, suggesting the dangerous possibility. I, I threw in the dangerous, that's not in the text, but it is dangerous because they can go blind from this. Uh, the dangerous possibility of giant cell arteritis. Therefore, a temporal artery biopsy is indicated. By the way, if this was a treatment question uh, and they were asking what you should treat them with next, what's your answer to that one? Um, yes, you would give them uh, a whomping dose of um, intravenous steroids, solumedrol, uh, basically to uh, decrease the inflammation so you could prevent them from losing their vision. So visual manifestations such as amaurosis fugax and anterior ischemic optic neuropathy due to vascular occlusion are the most feared complications or dangerous complications with giant cell arteritis. However, a dilated ophthalmologic examination may be normal in patients with GCA, so that was not a good choice. You could do that anyway as you're admitting them if you're a thorough medical student or resident. Um, but it would not provide adequate diagnostic information to guide therapy other than that it would probably be normal in this patient's case. Um, and as far as the MRI choices go, I'm hoping you didn't pick either of those, but if you did, although patients with suspected GCA may have headache and scalp tenderness, standard MRI brain imaging is not able to detect the vascular lesions associated with vasculitis and would not provide adequate diagnostic help to you. Magnetic resonance angiography may be abnormal in patients with giant cell arteritis, but also does not provide enough information to establish the diagnosis and guide therapy. And finally, MRI of the shoulder and hip joints, definitely not where the money is, but it may show evidence of inflammation of the periarticular structures in patients with PMR, but these findings are not required for diagnosis of this condition. So the key point here is that temporal artery biopsy is the diagnostic procedure of choice in patients with suspected giant cell arteritis. Sort of footnote to that, you know, a lot of people believe that both temporal arteries should be biopsied and it should be a fairly long uh, excisional biopsy because you can get skip lesions um, or you get inflammation in some parts of the temporal artery and not in others. So you could potentially miss it if you take too small of a snippet of the temporal arteries. And the patients do fine without uh, um, these chunks of temporal arteries, interestingly enough. That's just my little footnote in there. Anyway, I will see you again soon for the last four questions in the rheumatology section. Have a great day.